They came when I was eight, the voices at the fringes of my skull, quiet at first, almost polite, humming a nearly sweet sound around the periphery of my brain, like playmates wanting entry, not frightening, just new. This is Allie Daniels. You're listening to Antimony. Episode 4 Honey and Tar. I decided to do my ethics homework in the library, mainly for the chance to spend more time with Josh. When I arrived, he was sitting behind the counter, but strained forward like he wanted to leap over it. He pushed aside a pile of books as I came over to say hello. Come with me, now. I have to show you something. Come with you where? Are you allowed to leave the desk unattended? It'll just take a sec. Wait, I'm leaving a note. Back in five minutes. There. I guess you're one of those rule followers. Can't be trusted to figure things out on your own? Where are we going? He was already disappearing into the stairwell that led up to the stacks. As much as I loved looking through the books, the stacks in the library were unnerving. The lighting was kept at a low level. The floors were made of a thick, translucent glass so you could make out the shadowy figures of people on the floors above and below each level. You could see the soles of shoes or make out the top of someone's head and maybe their arms as they reached to pull a book off one of the shelves. The fogged glass, darkened stacks, and quiet made me feel like I was trapped between layers of wax, as though I had wandered into a giant beehive during hibernation. If I weren't careful... I might awaken the queen and her squadron of drones. I followed Josh as he bounded up the stairs. We reached the fifth story and he ducked in between two bookshelves. I tried to remember what section we were in. Let's see. uh, Call letters BF, Occult and Paranormal Phenomena. Was he one of those Ouija board magic eight ball types? Oh, there you are. It's not a book. It's me. I have something you'll want to see. He's unbuttoning his shirt. Wow, is he confident. What are you doing? I'm not getting fresh. I just need to show you. Trust me. He stuffed his button-down shirt on top of some books and started on the T-shirt he was wearing underneath, releasing a strong whiff of downy. I breathed in deeply as he crossed his arms, grabbed his shirt at his waist, and raised it halfway up his back. He turned and stood with his back toward me. 
two scars identical to my own. He dropped his shirt and turned around. How? When? I thought that would get your attention. I am all ears. Don't want to rush back to the desk? I'm sure my five minutes is up. I probably don't have time to put my shirt back on. Stop it. Talk quickly. And yes, put your shirt back on. You have them too, right? Uh Uh-huh. I figured by the way you reacted when I touched your back at the main library. I checked out the garrison mummy. You noticed his scars as well. Yes. I'm not sure exactly what my scars are from. Do you know? No idea. Do you get the feeling that things here don't seem quite right? What do you mean? I think there may be things the people running the GYSP are working on. Things that may concern people like us. What do you mean, people like us? I don't know. I know part of the picture, and you do too. The obvious part. All the GYSP students are gifted, but not necessarily in the normal sense of giftedness. At least two of us have identical scarring on our backs that also happens to match the scars on a mummy donated to the museum by a member of the family that has the same name as the program we're in. By the way, there's about a 95% chance that the mummy is the person in the Bible called the Gerasene Demoniac. What? Based on the population at the time and the number of people in the region using mummification. So? So, I don't know exactly. But if it's him, the Gerasene Demoniac had demons expelled from him and somehow ended up mummified and on display in the museum here. Do you think we've been collected by the Gregorys too? I'm pretty sure I'm not demon-possessed. It's not just the mummy and the scars. It's the conversation I overheard during orientation. Did you see the secret surface wannabes at the back of the room? In front of the paintings? Yes. They were taking bets about how many of us would survive. That was the word they used. And who is the special recruit? Special recruit? Are you sure you heard that right? I have unusual hearing. I can hear really well from really far away. That got my attention. He has hypersensitive hearing? It's called hyperacusis. It doesn't work all the time. It depends on the frequency of sounds. Sometimes it's more like picking up the sound waves and getting actual words. But that I definitely heard correctly. I told him about my sense of smell. (laughs) What do I smell like? I wanted to tell him about all the things I associate with downy and crayons, sunshine and comfort, and being completely relaxed and at ease, and that I wanted to kiss him. But I stopped at downy and crayons. I like that. I needed to get back to the subject or lose it entirely. Go back to the special recruit. Who did they think it was? They think it's Xanthi. You know, the pretty blonde girl. Mantrap? Wow. Jealous much? Her scent. It's the name of a perfume. Someone is coming. 
Someone who ate a lot of garlic bread last night. I've got to get back to the desk. Neith, a GYSP student, came around the corner and saw Josh and me together. Uh, hi. Uh, hi, Neith. Can Josh help you find something? Josh? He must have already gone. I'm, uh, I'm looking for this book about love potions. H- here are the call letters. Love potions? Yes, or related enchantments. Haven't you done your ethics homework yet? Um, no. See, the Watchers from our first Enoch reading give humans various kinds of forbidden knowledge, including spells and how to undo them. I also think part of what they taught humans was pharmacopoeia. Pharma... Pharmacopoeia, making medicines and drugs. The, the, re- the reading refers to knowledge about plants and roots. I thought I would do a little more research and find out if anyone knows specifically what it is they taught. I wondered if Neith's interest in love potions was not just academic. During class, he had been watching Zia, the singer, with big round eyes and a dreamy expression. Neith was sweet and seemed a little shy. His olive skin had a sprinkling of freckles. He was the only boy in our class who wore glasses. I found the book with the call letters on Neath's slip of paper, Ancient Enchantments and Incantations in Folklore and Fiction. There may be some other related titles in this area. Good luck. Thanks. I decided to do my homework in my room, but I had to walk past the desk where Josh was. Sorry, I shouldn't have just left you like that. I'm just nervous about things here, and I can't tell if I'm relieved you have the scars too, or whether that just confirms that I, we, should be nervous. I won't do it again. Okay, rule number one, no leaving me in the creepy stacks, especially after a mysterious self-disclosure. I can follow that rule. To be continued? Soon. I walked back to my room, wondering how hard it would be to keep my mind on my homework, or whether, like Neith, I might go in search of info about love potions. When I settled down to do my homework, here's what I learned. The Book of First Enoch was written by Enoch, great-grandfather of Noah, of and the Ark fame. It told the story of a group of angels called Watchers who were supposed to watch over humans in the sense of looking out after their best interests, like the guardian angels in my mother's lullaby. But these ones had different ideas. When the Watchers looked at humans, what really caught their eyes were the females of the species— They swooped down to earth and mated with women. Watchers evidently were all males. Their babies turned out to be half-human and half-angel creatures called Nephilim. The next generation, the children of Nephilim, were called Eliad. So part angel and part human creatures inhabited the earth. This was not good. For one thing, the Nephilim believed humans should be their slaves. Their greed and desire for excess of everything, food, possessions, land ownership, caused environmental degradation on a huge scale. The Watchers also taught their wives secret knowledge, including magic spells and astrology and how to make weapons, makeup, jewelry, and stuff with plants and roots. 
If first Enoch were true, Aunt Alina was an expert on at least two of the forbidden subjects. The story ended with God sending archangels to imprison the disobedient watchers until a great judgment at the end of time. Also, because there was so much evil on the earth, God was going to send a great flood, and Noah would go down in history for the whole floating zoo thing. Ethics class was going to be fascinating. When I did fall asleep, I dreamed of winged creatures leering and swooping down on toga-clad women, and the same women wearing brilliant eyeshadow and spangled bracelets, their slim arms raised toward heaven, whether in self-defense or supplication I couldn't tell. Nearby, a group of men sharpened swords around a campfire and looked to the sky for a sign that it was time to go to war. Okay, wow. Enoch and Timony, the Garrison demoniac. I prefer to call him by his given name, Apati. Uh, pardon me? You know the name of the Garrison demoniac? Uh-huh. Uh, that's not in the Bible. I'm pretty sure of that. Maybe so, but don't you prefer to be called by your actual name? And how would you like to be remembered as the Garrison demoniac when you were cured? Used to be Garrison demoniac isn't better. He had a name. Fair enough. Wait, wait, go back. How do you know his name? Another Dream Lab transmission. Okay, let's hear it. Just keep in mind, the Gregorys got all this info first by harvesting my dreams, my anamnesis. I didn't know any of this until I got this flash drive. We wondered how they were always one step ahead of us. Transmission begins in 5, 4, 3, 2. They came when I was eight. The voices at the fringes of my skull. Quiet at first, almost polite. Humming a nearly sweet sound around the periphery of my brain. Like playmates wanting entry. Not frightening. Just new. Samia was intrigued by this assignment, the latest the peerless had given her. One of her own grandchildren, a descendant of hers with Gadriel, had been demon-possessed. It had been horrible to watch him succumb. Too horrible, in fact. The boy was taken from the village, so no one would have to see him undergo such torture. Whether he was simply left on his own to die or was drowned, as she had heard they sometimes did to the possessed, she didn't know. The young man before her now, the garrison, had been cured, and cured so completely that he hadn't needed any of her salves or ointments, the desire for which, she assumed, would provide her access to his story. He had declined and simply offered to tell her whatever she wanted to know. Having spent so much time with the peerless, she was unused to someone offering her something for nothing. What the peerless wanted was information. How had the man been healed? Who had the power to exorcise the demons when others were unable to drive them out? Within months, the sound grew more insistent, until I could feel it, the breach of my cranium, the way a rodent squeezes through a crevice in a rock wall, violating the tiniest flaw, 
contorting itself, altering matter to get where it wants to go. On the other side of the barrier, it expands to its original shape and girth and takes up residence. I could hear clearly inside my own head a voice not my own, then several slipping in through the same fissure, then more than I could count, like a swarm of birds, each with its own claws and caws, razor bills and screeches, straining to get my attention, ordering me to act or else suffer the stabs and shrieks of their horrible serrated beaks. At first I could not understand. I could only feel the stinging whine of their clawing and steely voices. My head throbbed, and there was no way to relieve the pain. Only my screaming more loudly than the voices numbed me. As I howled, a red veil descended over my vision so that everything I saw looked awash with blood. As I grew, these bouts of torture worsened. My parents referred to them as episodes. They spoke of them in hushed tones. At first, I took comfort in that name. It reminded me that Calm would descend again and the voices would quiet until the next outburst. But as the interludes shortened, the label frightened me because it meant they would be back. With each return, the voices were more numerous and their screeching more insistent. Once, when I was twelve during an episode, I ran from our house into the field behind our village Although my body was small, it had been hard for me to eat enough and grow well with my condition. The presence of all these screechers inside me meant the open air was the only place I felt there was sufficient room for me. As their shrieking continued and the red film descended, I, I collapsed to the ground. I pawed for a stone, and when I found one with a sharp edge, I gouged myself. It was one way I could feel something that was me, mine, amidst the sense that what was inside me was not. This is my skin, my blood, my pain. The cutting did not quiet the voices, but it let me strike back. At a high cost, I would eventually collapse, exhausted, unconscious. Samya shook her head, a compassionate gesture, as she remembered times she had seen wounds and scars, evidence of the self-harm of the possessed. The preferred targets of demons, according to the peerless, were those with a high percentage of Nephil blood. Demons were the disembodied spirits that went loose when the Nephilim bodies ruptured, not allowed by the enemy into heaven, and not consigned before the final judgment to hell. Demons had to stay in the earthly realm where they needed bodies to inhabit. But when demons took over a new body, they caused chaos. They needed to be in control to unseat the person whose body they had taken over. Samya had asked Gadriel, Why do they hurt their hosts? If they destroy them, 
they'll only need to move on to another body. Demons loathe the physical body. They take pleasure in destruction. There will always be another host to destroy. It was night when I awoke. I pulled myself up from the dirt and staggered back toward our house. I could see that the oil lamp still burned in the main room. My parents were awake. I was caked with blood and dirt. I paused outside the entrance to see if I could wipe some of the grime away without disrupting my wounds. I ran my hands through my matted hair and closed my eyes so the falling grit would not sting my eyes. The door was slightly ajar and I could hear my parents' voices. We cannot continue this way. He needs to go now. Before they destroy him, gain strength and seek lodging in his siblings. It is hopeless and too dangerous for him to remain. Samya tried to push aside the genuine pity she felt for him and his parents. What did they do? My father told me to say goodbye to my mother. Then he led me to the cemetery at the outskirts of the village, high on the cliffs above the lake. As we neared the cemetery edge, where the first tombs point up like teeth, Father sighed heavily. He put his hand on my shoulder and guided me through the gap in the low wall surrounding the graveyard and gestured for me to sit on a stone bench next to a tall alabaster marker. The marker was shaped like an obelisk and glowed a purplish-white in the moonlight. I looked at the name engraved in the base of the monument. Egregor. I didn't recognize it. Egregor. Yes. You know this name? I have heard of it. My father told me. This is our family's monument. But our graves are over there. I pointed to a row of small plain stones farther into the cemetery I remember where Grandfather was laid, I told him. Had he forgotten where his own father was buried? You are correct, but this is our family's monument. Here, with the egregores, is where our family truly belongs. Then it's true. You're part Netho. That's why you were possessed. You know about this? Not many people do. Please, go on. It's just that I've wondered if Nephilim exist, and if it's true that demon possession is more of a threat to them, and what I might do to be helpful as a healer. It is true. We exist, and because the demons come from Nephilim, it's to Nephilim they prefer to return. My father explained this to me as we stood by the alabaster monument in the moonlight. I felt guilty, as if I were responsible for my own suffering and the suffering of my parents. My father told me there was nothing I had done to cause this, but he also told me there was nothing he or my mother could do but try to protect the others. There is no cure, and once they destroy you, they will look for others to inhabit. Others with Nephil blood. 
They would go first to those nearby, my brothers and sisters most likely. They seemed drawn to children. Then I understood why my father had brought me to the graveyard. It was a place where few people came. He could leave me there. The evil spirits could do what they would do with me, and no one else would be harmed. I asked him how long until I would die. I don't know. I am sorry to do this. Shackles? Must I be restrained? Here is food enough for a week. I will come and bring more. If you are in your right mind, you will know I am here and we can talk as before. But I will lose you soon, so we should say goodbye now. He embraced me. I wept and clung to him. I felt his hands pry mine away. A wave of panic swept through me. I begged him not to leave. He wept, but he turned away. And the red veil began to descend. How long were you there? I do not know. I noticed the passing of time, not by sunrises or the changes in the night sky, but in how broken, bruised, and bloodied my body became. Each period of consciousness, when I felt in my right mind again, brought a new awareness of my torn flesh, new welts, yellow and green contusions. My clothing was in shreds and then gone. I had no energy even to feel shame at my nakedness. My ribs stood out like ridges in sand. My arms and legs became battered sticks. I stopped eating and I had no memory of human contact. I was in too much pain to be lonely. I wished only for an end. I tried to throw myself from the high cliff, but my shackle prevented it. I tried to strangle myself with my chain. But each time I was about to lose consciousness, it was as if I awakened the demons, and they tormented me again. They would not let me kill myself. They would use me for their shelter for as long as my body could withstand it. Then he arrived. Who? The man who rescued me. And who was that? The one who released the demons. Yes? He must have been very strong, because he gripped me while I was still in the midst of a visitation. The screechers raged, the red veil smothered me, yet even through the torture, I could feel two strong hands on either side of my face. Father, I thought. Then the demons prevented another articulate cognition. They slashed at me from inside, trying to reach the man who had me in his grip. The screeching congealed and formed words that burst from my mouth. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. What is your name? It was the demons, not I, who replied. 
My name is Legion, for we are many. His face came into focus. His eyes looked directly into mine. His grip on my head was firm. He opened his mouth and spoke. One word. Just one word. And it was over. My body heaved, as if my entire body, not just my stomach, was expelling its contents. The man held my head firmly as a stream of red and black-like thick and milky smoke rushed from my mouth and flew past him to somewhere beyond. I shuddered as the stream came to an end. The red veil lifted, my vision cleared. I could hear pigs squealing, and then I watched as they hurtled themselves over the cliff and into the water below. I heard birdsong and felt the breeze, then saw the man smiling as he said my name, Abati. He helped me to sit and gave me water and bread. He spoke again. Abati, you are freed from the intruders. You may do as you like. Only first go back to your village and show them you are freed and in your right mind. The word, your voice. I was not sure what to say to this remarkable man, but I wanted to acknowledge what he had done. Abadi paused and smiled a peaceful, beatific smile. He looked like the meaning of his name, splendor, magnificence, light. Samia had never seen such peace. For just a moment, she wanted this peace for herself. She thought about asking him how she could know it. Then she remembered her errand, what she had actually come for. The word What was the word the man said? The word that released the demons? The healer told me, The word I spoke is important, yes. Others will pursue it thinking it has power in its own right, like a spell. Do not give it to them. Its truest power comes only when spoken in love. For love, by love. But you can tell me, surely. Please. I have promised to protect the word. In gratitude to the healer, I obey him and safeguard the word. But if the word can set others free, why not share it? Aren't you being selfish? I will not. I know people who would reward you. Your own flesh and blood. Other Nephilim. Those who would offer me reward for forsaking trust are not worthy of my trust. I wish you well, and I wish you peace. He bowed and walked away, leaving Sonia alone. She considered going after him, to go with him, wherever he was going. But she stood still instead. She returned to the peerless and gave her report. 
He knows nothing. You have failed. We will send someone more persuasive, and we will withhold your next dose of elixir. Perhaps you will try harder next time. It was time to go with Delani to see Dr. Kaleo, find out what she wanted to talk to us about after the glowing votives in class. I couldn't see how we would be in trouble after that, but I had no idea what she wanted. And as I came to realize, every member of the GYSP faculty wanted something. Dr. Kaleo's office was on the lower level of the museum. On our way there, we saw a door marked Exhibit Material, Authorized Access Only. The door was slightly ajar, and a dim light shone from within the room. We're five minutes early. Dr. Kaleo isn't expecting us until 10. I guess there's nothing wrong with just looking in through the open crack. I can't see anything. Me neither. Does this help? There's no one in here. Let's take a look. My heart was pounding. I was certain neither of us qualified for authorized access, but Josh's remark about me being a rule follower still stung. Maybe this would be a safe way to prove him wrong and come back with some information about what was going on around here. We stepped inside, and I pushed the door back to the hand-width crack we had started with. The room smelled of honey and tar. The overhead lights were off, and there were no windows, but light emanated from a quart-sized jar sitting on a long stainless steel table in front of a stack of wooden crates. The jar seemed to glow brighter as we approached and illuminated the objects spread out next to it on the table— a syringe, a Petri dish, a magnifying glass, a flat black knife, a desk lamp, and a crowbar. Delani pointed at the Petri dish. A large black housefly was walking across the bottom of it. Gross! Flies are disgusting, especially those big ones. It's feet! Wow! Its feet are glowing! Follow the glow, look! It landed on one of those crates. What's that? The crates are all marked specimens, duophysite, four months through eight years, Abyssinia. There must be a dozen of them. Some are open. It looks like straw is sticking out of the top. Packing material? I'm turning on a lamp. (gasps) Are those what I think they are? They look like babies. On the table were three clear glass domes, about two feet high and about a foot and a half in diameter. The glass coverings rested on wooden bases. Under each dome was a small, seated figure. I looked down at the one closest to me, in the middle of the three. The left half of its body was encased in wrappings, beige linen strips pressed closely around its skin, The wrappings had been removed on its right side and folded back to expose the child beneath. 
I couldn't tell if it was a boy or a girl. Its skin was dark, almost black, leathery, and drawn tight to the withered muscles and sinews that still clad its bones and skull. Its mouth was half open, like it was trying to breathe, and tiny teeth showed through its taut lips. Its hair was thick and matted, curly and black, tinged with a rusty red. Its little arm rested on its outstretched leg and was adorned with a small, tarnished silver beaded bracelet. A toddler? It looks real, like an actual human toddler. A mummified human toddler. Another. She pointed to the one on the left. It was completely wrapped in bandages, tight enough to show the outline of its open mouth. A string of colorful feathers and large silver beads was wrapped around the torso. A hammered silver circle was pushed down onto its head. A crown? The circle was about an inch wide, thin, and embossed with tiny stars. Slowly we stepped in front of the third glass dome. The child inside was completely unwrapped, no bandages, just draped with a beige linen cloth around its waist. It, too, was adorned with silver bracelets, one on each wrist. A silver necklace hung around its neck with a small circle pendant hanging in front of the middle of its chest. I looked at its face, its head slightly tilted back, its mouth open, its rows of small white teeth parted, yearning for food or breath. Its eye sockets were empty, but its eyelashes were intact, and like the hair on its head, thick and black with a hint of red. As I moved my head to get a view from the side, something glittered on the small child's face. Is that gold? Gold dust? Looks like makeup. See, there's a swoosh of it on each cheekbone. It's faint, but it's there. And here, gold eyeshadow. It's wearing eyeliner, too. See? Just below the eyelashes. Just like the garrison mummy in the museum. Who did this? They're marked specimens. Duophysite specimens. Specimens with two natures? Two natures? Like half-human, half-angel? Like the Enoch story? Like in the Enoch story, where makeup and jewelry are really important. Where's Abyssinia? What is that? Something familiar. Roses? Lilacs? Rotting meat? Ugh, too late. Today we call it Ethiopia. Uh, uh, Dr. Kaleo, hello, um, we were just... You are late for our appointment. I see you have found the material for our next special exhibit. It's this I wanted to talk with you about. A rare opportunity for you, if you can be trusted and prompt. I was so embarrassed at being caught and late. I wanted to make a good impression... Josh was right. I am a rule keeper. Following rules keeps you from looking like an idiot. Can you be trusted and prompt? We both nodded. 
I was so relieved that Dr. Kaleo seemed more worried about the clock than the fact that Delani and I were trespassing. Fine. Good. You noticed our treasure. The Abyssinian collection. A precious find. These specimens were presumed lost during the Second World War, but recently rediscovered in a vault in Budapest. We assume the Nazis had stored them, anxious as the Nazis were to study those they regarded as aberrations. Specimens? Aberrations? Are they true mummies? Did, did people other than the Egyptians mummify? Yes, these are the mummified remains of children prepared in Ethiopia. There are 15 in all of various ages, although none reached the age of nine. These Victorian cloche bell jars date from when the mummies were first prepared for examination and display. Of course, our methods for scientific investigation have advanced tremendously since the late 1800s. I wanted to say, wait, you got them from curious Nazis and now you're going to study them? How is this different? Ethiopia was a prime source of materials used in Egyptian mummification. Natron salt, frankincense, myrrh were all available in ample supply in Ethiopia. It's the source of very fine frankincense, the milky white resin from the tree genus Boswellia. Ethiopians also used an exquisite white honey and asphalt or bitumen called mumia in Arabic to preserve the dead. You can still smell it? She looked like she liked it, but the smell of tar was making me queasy. Ethiopians may have begun mummifying those deemed worthy of special treatment even earlier than the Egyptians did. This knife is called a necrotome, a knife used to examine the desiccated flesh of the deceased. Ethiopian obsidian, sharper than surgical steel. I glanced at the syringe next to the knife. I didn't want to know what that was for. Needles were just below water and just above public speaking on the list of things that made me feel faint. I imagine you have more questions. We have no more time today. I will leave you with this. You may be witness to the most interesting and exciting inquiry ever undertaken in our institution. These specimens were once considered to be gifts given by an immortal power. Now we have the power to ask, can they, even in death, give life? Dr. Kaleo, your presence is required in room 102. Our appointment will have to be postponed until next week. I will see you in class. And then, although I had no idea why at the time, I reached back to the table behind me, grabbed the necrotome, and tucked the blade into my back pocket pulling the hem of my hoodie down to make sure it didn't show. Time to leave. Now. She ushered us out of the room ahead of her and switched off the lamp and the overhead lights. I turned back toward the room and could see the Petri dish glowing as Dr. Kaleo shut, then locked the door. Ethics class, and a discussion of our reading about the rebellious angels from First Enoch. 
Okay, what is our reading from First Enoch about? Anyone, just call it out. Um, hybrid creatures who destroy the world. Okay. Uh, fallen angels. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Where weapons came from. Hmm. How people started wearing jewelry. Good. And makeup. Yes. And doing horoscopes. Magical spells and sorcery, and how to undo spells. Anything else? Yes, Neith. I'm wondering about the Eliad, the offspring of the Nephilim. Uh, First Enoch doesn't say what happened to them. Dr. Eater's eyes flashed with excitement, like Neith had stumbled on some piece of treasure. Even more, I smelled his thrill. He emitted a burst of scent like the blackened outer crust of a marshmallow allowed to catch fire, then extinguished. What do you think? Well, their name is interesting to me, for one thing. Say more. In Hebrew, the name Eliad could mean hand of God or power of God. But if the Eliad are offspring of the Nephilim and the Nephilim are the offspring of rebellious angels, how would Eliad be useful to God? How indeed. Perhaps if they make the right decision, they can be useful to their Nephilim parents. That is, perhaps the Eliad have some attributes that can help the Nephilim. He's using the present tense. Does anyone else think that's weird? Yes, Fenton. Fenton's thing was genetic research. He was working on a cure for childhood leukemia. Would Eliud be born only to two Nephilim parents? Or could Eliud also be the children of a Nephil parent and a human parent? The purest form of existence would be a Nephil, born to a watcher father and a human mother. Two Nephilim parents, ideally, could have an Eliad child who is just like them, carrying their best traits. It is also possible that the child could be burdened by the traits of humanity within each of his or her parents. But enough genetics for now. Let us return to ethics. Now, how would you describe what this story is trying to do? What is its purpose? I was feeling brave and put up my hand. Dr. Eater looked at me, but couldn't recall my name. He consulted his class seating chart. Uh, Kaya, thank you. What do you think? I think, like you said last time, it's a story about how evil got into the world. It's trying to explain where a number of things that cause us problems come from. Weapons, wealth, mm. Those were the obvious bad things the Watchers taught, although probably sorcery wasn't great either. And sorcery. Nothing else? Well, the other things must be negative too, because the outcome is so bad. Violence, destruction, and the Watchers get locked up forever for sharing the information. Yes, this story is a classic example of an explanation of how evil got into the world. It is a little different from the one which most of you are already familiar, and the one in which the snake tempts Eve in the Garden of Eden, and then Eve and Adam eat the forbidden fruit. In that story, the humans make a choice that displeases their maker, with a little help from a serpent. In this story, from Enoch, A group of angels initiate the action. Yes, Xanthi. 
What's wrong with eye makeup and jewelry? I swear she batted her eyelashes at Dr. Eater. Indeed. What is wrong with eye makeup and jewelry? Yes, Delani. Like the other things, astrology and magic spells and weapons, they're meant to give one person power over another. Oh, like how some people go all weak in the knees when a gorgeous, well-made-up woman walks through the room. She turned in her seat as she said this so that all eyes could be on her. With one finger, she twisted a pendant on a delicate chain around her neck, and I saw some knees losing strength. Well, yes, actually, especially if the purpose is to manipulate something natural to make it prettier or flashier. I'm not against makeup or anything, but I can see the danger where someone might have ulterior motives more than just wanting to look pretty. And jewelry can decorate, but it can also show how rich you are, or at least that you have more money than someone else. Rachel, you have a comment? Yes, thank you, sir. It's odd, isn't it, that some of the things they taught are really vague, like the signs of the moon and knowledge of plants, while some are more specific, like gold, silver, and antimony. We would have to guess at what the moon signs are, and I have no idea what plants they're talking about, but we all know about gold, silver, and antimony. Say more. Well, antimony is a really important element. On the periodic table, it's number 51 and goes by SB, for stibium, its Latin name. In ancient times, it was used by Egyptians to make coal, that black eyeliner worn by both men and women. In modern times, it has all kinds of applications, batteries, bullets, microelectronics, flame retardants, and fire starters. It's used in camouflage paints and to prepare glass for television screens and computer monitors. Thank you, Rachel. It's also used in a treatment for dogs and cats who catch a disease from sand flies. It's been used to treat various ailments in humans as well. Yes, Delani. Evidently, even this one small lesson from the Watchers had a big impact. Imagine what we might find if we did know more specifically what the Watchers taught about the thing Rachel correctly identified as vague. The spells, use of plants, and signs of the various astronomical bodies. Uh, But wait, isn't this just a myth? Didn't you say this is just a way that ancient people try to explain how things got messed up, how evil started? Anyone care to address Kaya's question? That this is just a myth. Josh? Myth doesn't mean untrue. It means so true it can't be reported just like any regular story. There's a truth in it so deep that only a story with such fantastical characters can begin to get at it. It's not like it has to be taken literally. Good. But can a myth also be taken literally? They are sometimes. I know people who think there really was a snake in the Garden of Eden who could talk, and that two people ate an apple, and the world has been messed up ever since. There probably are people who believe that angels mated with humans and made bizarre babies, too. There very well may be. But let us consider Kaya's other point, that this is a story about the origin of evil, 
is it? Yes. Yes. Can someone say why? Neath. Well, Kaya said it. The outcome is really bad. Death, destruction, violence, and judgment. So it is. But what if this is just one side of the story? What if this is just merely the way the winners told it? There are two sides to every story, are there not? What if there's another version of this story with the same basic details, but rather that watchers being villains who unleash terrors and trouble into the world? The watchers are the heroes who give birth to bold new direction for life on planet Earth. What if, rather than calling them by their bias name, fallen angels, we were to think of them as angels who descended to Earth-bearing gifts? The scribe Enoch was giving only one point of view, the bias point of view that supports the side with which he was aligned. What if the Watchers also had a scribe? Is there another version of the story? There are variants on the same judgmental that is negative theme. For instance, later in First Enoch, there is an allegorical version in which the Watchers are Brilliant stars who fall to earth and land amidst the inhabitants, mate with them, and noteworthy creatures are produced. The passage states, Behold, a star fell, and it arose, and began to live and eat among those creatures. But alas, no, (sighs) we are aware of no extant version open to the possibility that something good began when the Watchers descended. It is up to bright young scholars as yourselves to surmise what such a document contain were it to exist. In my version, makeup would be a gift and jewelry would be a blessing. For next class, I want you all to imagine an appropriate rebuttal to Enoch's interpretation. Imagine you are the scribe of the Watchers and it is your job to write the story from their point of view. Make it no longer than two pages, double space. Be creative. This is going to be a challenge. The story is pretty clear that what they did is wrong. Yeah, I get Dr. Ida's point about there being different sides to a story, but it seems like he wants us to think this story is about something good. He sure seems to think Enoch got it wrong. The antimony reference is pretty interesting, though. I'm going to take it from that starting point. Antimony. Interesting name. Comes from the Greek words for not alone or against aloneness. You just happen to know that? Sorry, can't help myself. I'm a legologist. Oh, legologist. A person who's crazy about words and word puzzles. Anyway, uh, maybe we can work on this together? Against aloneness. Sounds good, right? Who wants to be alone? But really, it all depends on whether or not you end up on the winning side. This is Allie Daniels. Thank you for listening to Antimony. This podcast was written by Amy Richter and is based on the novel Antimony, published by Whipfenstock. Copyright 2019. 
The novel is available at withinstock.com, amazon.com, and other online booksellers. Music for the podcast was composed and arranged by Pan Conrad. You've been listening to the voices of the Silver Linings Players, a group of volunteers from all over the world who came together virtually during the COVID-19 pandemic to record this podcast for you. Episode 4 featured Lydia Brower as Kaya, David Merrill as Josh, Emmett Pro Richter as Neith, Pan Conrad as Abati, Stu Garbett as narrator, Kimberly Nussbaum as Samya, Thomas Foster as Gadriel, Andrew Richter as Abati's father, Joseph Pagano as Jesus, Catherine Hilton as Delani, Jenny Ovenstone Smith as Dr. Kaleo, Kadri Holmes as Dr. Eder, Joel Richter as Finton, Lily Kerr Young as Xanthi, and Rachel Hunter as Rachel. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and tell a friend. We'll be back in two weeks with Episode 5.